this episode, we're going to be talking about slavery in the Viking Age with Ben Raffield. Uh, ben works in Sweden and um, is uh, is quite renowned for his work. And it was it was very interesting to get to do this interview with him and have a, a deeper insight into the well into his studies of all of this uh, this dark subject. We've tried to approach this subject as carefully as we can because obviously it's an extremely sensitive one. Even after a, you know a thousand plus years or whatever, we're still discussing real human beings. That's you know that, you know were forced into servitude and would have had terrible lives. But th- the truth of it is, is you know not only has this been uh, the case for most of history, but this is the uh, an aspect of the Viking Age in particular that we're going to be discussing that most people you know don't really know about and not much research has been done into it on the whole compared to you know say the construction of longboats and so on so um yeah i hope you in, i hope you enjoy uh, following us down this path of uh, getting a bit more of an insight into the world and you know putting some yeah uh, you know giving a voice to those people that uh that sadly you know were the backbone of the viking age here we go <laughs> Ben, thank you so much for joining us for this. Oh, absolutely. Thank you for, for having me along. It's a, it's a great pleasure. Yeah, so would, uh, just uh, to kick it off then, would you mind telling us a bit about yourself and your work? Sure. Well, um, I'm a researcher at uh, Uppsala University in, uh, in Sweden. Um, I'm an archaeologist specialising in the study of the Viking Age. Um, but my particular interests um, that I've been pursuing really over the last 10 years now or so um, it's the study of uh, conflict in terms of uh, Viking Age raiding fleets, um, Vikings doing what we associate the Vikings classically as doing, um, going abroad and, and uh, raiding and colonizing, but also um, the processes associated with this. And the one that is uh, a particular interest to me is slaving. Uh, so the study of the what we might call the Viking Age slave trade, but also the um, the slaving systems of Scandinavia itself. And that's really the, the focus of my work at the moment as part of the, uh, the Viking Phenomenon Project here at Uppsala. Well, it's a, it's a pleasure to get to talk to you over some of this because, you know, um, well, I've got lots of things that, uh, you know, I've, I've, been, I've been saving up for to talk to someone that hopefully knows more about it than me. So, um, so for instance, uh, you know, uh, I I just read Neil Price's book uh, mm-hmm. Children of Ash Ash and Elm, and you know he highlights in that the sort of industrialization of slavery uh, in yeah. the Viking Age because of course, um, you know slavery has always been a thing all through the ages. It's just more that the Vikings seem to have done it particularly well, and uh, it seemed to be a major cog in the machine that was the Viking Age. Uh, absolutely, I mean. Um... I think actually you, you've even just in saying that you've touched on a point that I think a lot of people don't necessarily appreciate about human societies in general is that you know practicing slavery or um, holding and exploiting captives or unfree people. I mean it's been fundamental to to societies for 
you know, perhaps since the, the since the days when we invented agriculture, essentially. Um, and yeah, with in in terms of uh, the institution of slavery as it existed in the Viking Age, um, what we see uh, in this period, and this is of course the period when when Scandinavia kind of enters into the onto the historical stage, as it were. This is when we start to to uh, to hear about Scandinavian society through the works of outsiders. We start to hear about um, the activities of Viking raiding groups. Um, and so as we enter into this period, what we are getting, I think, is perhaps, you know, the first, um, uh, something towards a more comprehensive snapshot of how society is operating at this time. And certainly I think the societies of Viking Age Scandinavia, they were, they were heavily hierarchical, they were extremely structured, um, with deeply ingrained systems of socio, you know, socio inequ- social inequality, um, you know, upheld the power of the the leaders and the kings, uh, the rulers that we read about um, in the sources, uh, and what we're probably seeing here is is as as you say a kind of an evolution of a system that had been there for many hundreds or even thousands of years. Um, it's been argued, for example, that there was some form of slavery practice in Scandinavia, perhaps since the Bronze Age. So, I mean, you're going quite quite far back there. But what we see um, moving into this period that we call the Viking Age during the first millennium is a, a kind of uh, institutionalization of social inequality. It's this time when um, the enslaved classes um, and also the free classes, they, they really start to to become more defined, we actually start to see them um, within the archaeological record. And the processes that arguably drive the Viking Age, um, or this period that we call the Viking Age, you know, uh, um, activities such as raiding and long-distance travel, uh, to some extent these play a, a significant role in the, in the institutionalization of these practices, um, both in terms of uh, driving a desire for unfree or coerced or enslaved labour, whatever we want to call it, um, but also they, it, these activities in their own way, they, they couldn't have taken place in the, in, in, in the, you know, from the outset unless you have uh, an unfree or enslaved class of people to actually support them. Um, so it's, 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 it's really quite difficult to say when... Um, and how uh, these practices became so deeply entrenched um, in society. But but what we do know is that by the Viking Age, I mean, they really are there. Um, But this is just a a subject um, that, for reasons I'm still trying to really figure out, just has not been on the radar of of, of archaeologists for, well, until until quite recently, really. Yeah. I can imagine it's a little bit the case of you know, like say, for instance, when when um, people get interested in the Viking Age, for instance, then they usually um, they will be uh, mesmerized by by seeing the the shiny things, the shiny aspects of it, and the the hero- heroic sides of the Viking Age, and then and that's the thing is, you know, it takes a while to get past that, doesn't it? To to start to see a little bit deeper into it all. 
Uh, absolutely. The ugly yeah. underbelly. No, it, indeed. I mean, I think that you, you've hit the nail right on the head there. I mean, um, you know, I mean, as, as speaking from an archaeological spe- perspective, I mean, we study material culture, we study things. Um, and so we naturally gravitate towards the, dis- the study and the discussion of the groups that own these things. And in the Viking Age, that means we're, we really are talking about a kind of a discussion of elite society, um, um, I believe, uh, w- within the field of Viking studies. Um, and that, you know, that naturally leads to other social groups, um, and not, not, not just socioeconomic groups, but also other demographic groups, um, women, children. Um, these groups get marginalised in, in favour of this kind of, as you say, this... Um, this very ostentatious and and quite bizarrely almost glamorized view of what we see the Viking Age as being, um, and with that, there, there, I think there comes almost a natural tendency to to you know disassociate oneself from thinking about these these really quite you know well I mean you know the the, the terrible things that the you know some of these people did you know in terms of, of going out and acquiring captives and, um, you know, and, and, and exploiting them um, after the fact. And that, that's, I think, you know, it's, it's something we just, we, we, we maybe don't turn away from when we study the past. I mean, speaking as a, you know, um, a, a, as, a, as, a, as you are, as a, as a British person who went through the educational system here, uh, sorry, um, in the UK, I mean, uh, I didn't learn anything about the British Empire as part of my education. Let's put it that way. Um, yeah, same here. Yeah, and and I mean the you know, in terms of you know learning about the systems of colonial oppression, <laughs> you know we enforced on much of the world. I mean, I, I think in a way it's the same when when we talk about any historical society in that in that sense. We we shy away from the discussion of these issues that actually make us quite uncomfortable. I think as well, like um, you know, something that that i would really like to try and well i i always try to bring attention to every time we talk um well i talk about any of this kind of stuff publicly would you know is the the basically like the whole thing about the viking age and with elements of the past just in general is you know the whole thing of over romanticizing it and not being realistic about about certain aspects of all of the stuff it's very important to put things into context and it's really interesting like the idea that that um you know Vikings going a Viking is mm. sort of seen as almost quite cool. Um, I think it was David Mitchell. I can't, um, I can't remember the name of the comedian. He you know he even said he made a short video once about saying like you know going raping and pillaging seems quite cool until you take out the pillaging part, mm-hmm. and and then you get more <laughs> of a realistic sort of you know it hits home a little bit more. Um, which is very uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. But um, so, what sort of evidence is there actually, you know, for for slavery in the Viking Age? <laughs> well, that's actually where we we do run into the uh, the 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 massive obstacle in the study of slavery. Um, in that, uh, from an archaeological perspective, I mean, and this this doesn't just go for the Viking Age. I mean, it it applies in in many. Uh, aspects cross-culturally. I mean, uh, enslaved groups are often described as invisible um, in the sense that uh, they are incredibly difficult to identify in the material record. 
Um, and there's there's a you know there's a, there's of course many logical reasons for this. Um, you know, for example, if you have a class of people who are uh, deemed by society to be to be chattel or to be objects, I mean, their opportunity to um, acquire their own um, you know material biographies, as it were, that we find in the archaeological record, those are severely limited. Um, their movements are curtailed, their movements are determined by someone else. Where they live, where they sleep, where they eat is determined by someone else. Um, it's that removal of, um, uh, you know, that being able to, of having that opportunity to kind of, as I say, create your own uh, material biography, as it were. Um, we, we really lose that when it comes to studying slavery. And, and I mean, even in, in early modern contexts, um, it's even though if in, for example, in the American South, when you work on plantation archeology, span I mean, I know that it, it's, it's difficult sometimes to even identify enslaved people within that context. Um, so when you go back a thousand years into what is essentially prehistory, um, the challenges become magnified, as you can imagine. Um, so really, I mean, what, what we have in terms of evidence for, for slavery, I mean, in my view, it, it largely rests on written sources, um, various, uh, various types of, of textual sources. Um, and, and we can, I'm very happy to talk about those if you'd like to. But uh, yeah, from an archaeological perspective, we really uh, rely on the discussion of a very few what you might call material proxies for slavery um, in 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 the in the work that I do anyway. For example, we can talk about the few finds of shackles that we have from Viking Age Scandinavia, for, for example, as a means of trying to talk about the lives of the enslaved. Um, but at the end of the day, you're really having to make large um, cognitive leaps. You're having to infer a lot and extrapolate. From a very small amount of data, um, yeah, and you know, and again, this is another reason that as archaeologists we've generally not dealt with this subject um, in in a satisfactory way. Um, yeah. uh, ben, so I w like when I've been reading uh, Neil's latest book, he mentions a little bit about um, it's written down about Heimdall. Mm -hmm. uh, sort of brings uh like he he has a uh, he sleeps with a mortal woman and that sort of brings thralls into the world is that is that correct <laughs> yeah it's it's something like that um uh this you're referring to this is the uh this this uh poem the uh the in english would be the lay of riga um and it's about uh yeah i apologize yeah. i know i didn't word that so well <laughs> no 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 it's it's but you kind of summed it up pretty much. I mean, uh, so you have the the god Heimdall um, traveling to visit the um, the various different social classes that ostensibly, according to the poem, make up uh, the society of the Viking Age, and he plays a role in um, yeah in fathering members of all these classes. So so not just the enslaved or the thralls. Um, but also, you know, the he then visits the the free farmers, and then he visits the aristocracy, and and does all of this there as well. But um, th this is a really it's a really interesting source, and also, I mean, it's it's a controversial one, of course, like like many of the sources we we deal with, in uh, in terms of of you know, it's it's not well dated, 
it's um it's certainly you know it, it's as it survives in its present form it's it dates from the, the middle ages um so we don't really know what kind of society it's talking about i like to think that maybe there is you know there is something in here that that at least reflects on the society of the viking age um uh, but even if it you know i mean these issues aside which we could talk about for hours but it would be incredibly boring um but uh if you <laughs> if you leave those issues aside um it's it's incredibly i think informative in its own way um as you you know you kind of allude to just now um in terms of the book the the poem uh, uh it names the uh the the members of this so-called race of thralls um and their names um essentially uh they embody the uh the kind of the the characteristics of of who thralls are and what they're meant to be um you know in the eyes of the the composer and perhaps in the eyes of of wider society so um do you have the names in front of you can you read them to us you have to tell me what page it is in Neil's book. <laughs> I think. I remember some I of think them. It, uh, I think it's around 145 at the bottom of the yes, page. Yes, indeed. Aha, uh-huh. yes. Yes, I remember now. Um, and of course, the fun thing about this is depending on what translation um, you use, unless you make your own translation, is that all these names will be different in every different version of the poem that you read. So that, that's great. I mean, that, that's helpful, isn't it? Um, but what do we have here? <laughs> um, so we have uh, the sons of the, of the race of thralls. Um, their names translating as uh, noisy, buyer boy, stout, sticky, bedmate, bad breath, stumpy, fatty, sluggish, grizzled, stupor, and long legs. Um, while the daughters um, are called dumpy, bulging calves, bellows nose, shouty, bondwoman, great gossip, raggedy hips, and crane shanks. Um, none of these are particularly nice, nice names, are they? <laughs> Let's be honest. Um, no. And uh, as I said, I mean, it really, um, at least in the in the perhaps in the eyes of the person that composed this poem um it really does uh in my view provide a, a really fantastic illustration of of you know what these people were supposed to be i mean so um they're essentially uh the people who fulfill all of the dirty manual tasks that you don't want to do in life um they are people to be exploited um and they their 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 characteristics as we see you know noisy sticky dumpy uh, it doesn't it doesn't provide you with a you know it's it's not they're not they're not very flattering um and yeah. and you know we have this kind of a uh, this image of a of broken people i think um and this is also i mean it's it's been noted, for example, by Stefan Brink, uh, my colleague, is that this is exactly also how we, in some way, see enslaved people portrayed in the in the sagas. They're kind of fitting. They're fitting a stereotype here, uh, perhaps a kind of a literary trope. Um, but in this case, I mean, 
it doesn't take much imagination to see how, you know, I mean, this is, this is essentially how enslaved people, you know, they are treated. They have been throughout history. Um, so I think it's, it's, a, it's a, a fantastic illustration, really, of, you know, at least to, to provide a starting point. And we can critique it for hours if we really want to. But I mean, um, as a starting point to kind of understand who these people are and again, why they've been neglected um, in, in our modern discourse as well. So I think that all of these uh, these sort of um, derogatory nicknames sort of allude to the idea of having uh, slaves around the house doing the mundane tasks. But um, I've sort of had my eyes opened recently to the idea that possibly um, they were like slaves were industrialized in Scandinavia on the sort of level of of uh, almost having workhouses where they would be weaving and farming um, en masse. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a really, it's an interesting point that I've been, been trying to, and I still am trying to, to, to get to grips with in my own work. Um, in, in thinking about this kind of concept, it's important to remember that we, we actually really have no idea of what percentage of the population in Scandinavia was enslaved at this time. Um, the higher end estimates are somewhere in about 20%. Um, which is an incredible amount of people. Um, But uh, others have argued that rather than holding large numbers and exploiting large numbers uh, of slaves, actually people, uh, you know, know, uh, Scandinavian societies were more interested in moving these people as as trade objects, essentially. But but I certainly think that in terms of the the size of society itself i mean you gotta remember this is a society based on subsistence uh, agriculture essentially um that there would have certainly been numbers of enslaved people within at least high status households um and when we think of what the viking age is again we return to this kind of this idea of this is a period when um, groups need to be able to furnish um, ships for long distance travel. They need people to construct these things. Uh, they need people to weave the sails um, to use on the ships, otherwise, you cannot undertake your travel. Um, when you actually start to kind of, in your mind, just uh, quantify the levels of work that are needed to make this happen, um, you start to you do start to wonder whether you know in enslaved labor was the way that um uh, various groups are actually able to 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 undertake this activity in the first place um because uh you know just just to um for example to produce the materials and to to weave um a single sail i mean that would take an, an incredible amount of time and of course, if you live in a household where you have to produce your own um, materials for your everyday life, um, you, you do need someone extra, as it were, to, to, to fulfill these tasks. Um, and then if you think about, for example, staying with the idea of um, outfitting ships, if you need to outfit five ships or ten ships um, to be uh, launched in around the same time, then you actually start to need, a, again, in relative terms, a very large number of people um, to actually fulfill these objectives. And, and certainly, cross-culturally, it, it's 
not uncommon that um, that people are taken captive and well basically for for use in in these kind of skilled tasks um, and in the Viking age it's uh, if we're going to for example talk about weaving this is a task that is um, generally associated uh, with women um, and actually there, there, you know there could be a link here with the kind of accounts that we read um, from the British Isles uh, from the continent of, of women specifically being taken captive by raiding groups it is possible that they're seeking out um, essentially skilled workers um, to take back to their home communities to to fulfill these tasks um, which then of course it feeds into a cycle of providing um, the means to undertake raiding again and on a larger scale. So this is again what I coming back to what I said about uh, you know slavery being kind of central to the not just the kind of the emergence of this period that we call the Viking Age, but also its its ongoing development, you know, across centuries. Um, but again, I mean the the problem that we always have. Um, in in you know in when we discuss these kind of things is is coming back to the material culture and uh, as yet it's it's very difficult to make a kind of conclusive statement about whether we have um, the infrastructure we have you know in in the whether we have large uh, buildings where people were you know essentially pressed into um, producing. Uh, goods. Um, there are a number of agricultural sites uh, that we know of, as several actually around the region that are here, uh, where I am in central Sweden, where we have um, we have farmsteads where you have the the large hall where people lived, and around these you have um, uh, large numbers of smaller buildings, sub semi subterranean structures. I mean the pit called pit houses. Um, and in some cases, these seem to have been used um, specifically for the purposes of, of textile making. And so it's been argued or perhaps suggested that these are the kind of places where we are finding groups of enslaved people um, engaging in these tasks. And what I would really love to do, which I would like to try and do as part of this, this research that I'm undertaking, is to try and draw this data together and see if, if it, there are kind of patterns in the material culture that, that you can start to uh, draw together and, and tentatively associate with this kind of activity. Um, but of course, I mean, it's, it's always going to be a hypothesis and it's, it's an idea that's really uh, difficult to uh, pursue in such a way that we might be able to, you know, for want of a better word, to prove this idea. Um, but again, I think if, if, we, if we can't prove the idea, we do need to ask ourselves then, you know, but how do we think um, societies are engaging in these kind of activities that they're doing. Um, there's got to be something there supporting this. Um, and I think you, in my view, you're you're kind of on the money there, and in in, uh, in 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 terms of uh, thinking that you know enslaved labour is providing this this impetus. Um, yeah. Well, it sort of makes sense if you're going to have, if they were to, unless they were just moving slaves along. If they were going to be keeping them in Scandinavia, then they are going to want to. Well, they're they're going to be becoming a part of the society then, and uh, and having a function within that, aren't they? It's just on what scale and what numbers, as you say. Yeah, absolutely. Because I mean, uh, 
you know, these are, as I said, I mean, this is a, a period and when, you know, if you, you're living in Scandinavia at the time, you know, a couple of bad harvests could kind of, you know, wipe out your household. So, I mean, if you're taking extra members into that household and providing for them, um, yeah, they do need to be fulfilling a pretty important function um, and uh, producing surplus goods in this sense that beyond the normal capability of the household. I think that's certainly a, uh, the kind of thing we might expect. Yeah. So... In terms of them being like a part of society, um, you you mentioned the names earlier. Obviously, like they sort of they have a degree of contempt to them, mm-hmm. and obviously, to to take slaves in the first place uh, <laughs> is to dehumanize people in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I'm just interested in like how, to what extent. In this in this Viking society where status is everything and it's very hierarchical, um, obviously, with these dehumanized people, was there the opportunity for them to then become free men again or free women? Yeah, uh, these these are all great questions, by the way, guys. I got to say, um, yes, you, you're absolutely right. I mean. If we look at the uh, the earliest Scandinavian law codes, again, these are documents that date from the Middle Ages, um, but preserve um, legislation that may date from the Viking Age. We, there's a lot of legislation dealing with the lives of enslaved people. Um, mm. And this uh, the dehumanization of this social group comes through very clearly in that they are people... Um, who are perceived to be the property of slaveholders. Um, they are essentially chattel. But these same uh, law codes do imply that there is um, a way out of slavery, that it is possible to be freed. Um, and there are various, um, there is various legislation associated with the, the ro- roles of both the freed person and the person who freed them um, after that fact. Uh, Whether that stigma of slavery ever goes away or not, I mean, that's a a different question. And I mean, I think Mm. if you look to the Roman world, for example, where, you know, if you're a freed freed slave, you know, you're known as a freedman and that status stays with you for the rest of your life. So even though you are freed, that that stigma never is really completely erased. Um, Yeah. So I think that's, that's you know, it's pretty much what we're seeing, um, I think, in the medieval law codes. But uh, but interestingly, I mean, we have we have a, a couple of of rune stones relating to um, uh, to slaves from the late Viking Age, um, and one of them uh, from Denmark um, it relates to a an enslaved smith who was freed, and he raises this rune stone in memory of his. The, the person who, you know, who, who previously, I guess, owned him. Um, and he mentions that uh, this person gave him freedom and also something, an object that is, uh, the translation is, is debatable, but it might be gold. So he was freed and given gold. Um, and obviously, I mean, you know, this person uh, maintained a social link with, with the slaveholder and that he raised a runestone in memory of him. Um, yeah. So I think uh, again that 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 probably speaks a lot to 
these kind of ongoing relationships uh, that, that would have to be maintained after someone was freed. Um, it's a subject I would really love to be able to, to explore more, actually. I think it, it could be quite fascinating. Um, yeah. That sounds really interesting. So when you mentioned in these these law tracts and etc. Um, and the did you mention like that there's certain duties of the person that used to own or well, not own but that formerly held a slave? Um, I I think there's um there's there's an in... I'd have to get them out and read them again but I think there's no. a there's <laughs> a, uh, there's don't a, worry no no there's a and as again as in as is as is uh, seen in 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 other in other um societies in the past i mean the the form the slaveholder still owes a kind of a, a duty to the person that they freed um right because you know they they were at one point you know fully responsible essentially for for their life um mm. and of course what this could also mean is that uh if you have a duty to the person that you uh formerly had as a slave you might set them up on for example on a, on a on a small farm um where they could actually produce uh, you know produce um goods and and actually um, um uh, raise money essentially for you <laughs> right so yeah. uh, through these kind of you know by maintaining these social and, and economic ties for example um there is actually perhaps a benefit for slaveholders to actually also uh manumit their slaves in that sense um okay and there is a there is a in one saga, I forget which one it is, but it, it mentions that, you know, there's a very, uh, you know, for want of a better word, a nice slaveholder who, who gives his, uh, you know, gives, gives the, uh, the enslaved people under his charge, uh, the opportunity to buy themselves out of slavery quite quickly. Um, and again, you know, again, this is, maybe this is actually almost the kind of strategy to ensure that you actually have a, um, a supply of, in, in a way, semi-dependent labour, um, right. even after these people have been freed. Um, there, there's really a lot, I mean, uh, this is something I haven't yet had the chance to delve into too deeply in my own work. Uh, this is, you know, this is manumission that comes towards the end <laughs> of yeah. what I'm doing. I'm still very much um, uh, studying the, the kind of the earlier phases of enslavement in my work. But um, I, I think there's there's a lot to... to uh, to uncover there and i think again if we well i think yeah. that that's also kind of interesting that the idea the so when i've looked into into this sort of stuff in the past in different cultures and so on mm-hmm. it's the it's the whole thing that free people will always work harder than than people that don't want to in in one way or another so the idea of giving someone um a bit of an incentive to work harder one way or another and then possibly be able to gain something out of the end of it as well. Mm-hmm. It's, yeah. So. <laughs> Actually, it's, I, I presented a, at a conference online at the beginning of, of September, actually. This is, it's funny you say this. It was um, a conference uh, dedicated to the study of political economy and someone actually gave a presentation um, on uh, kind of labour management on on plantations in the in the American South as kind of the first manifestation of of HR essentially of, of human resource wow. management for, for exactly through this through incentivizing your workers and uh, ensuring you know in, wow. ensuring that uh, that they're comfortable enough 
to do well in that sense. Um, yeah. And actually, you sit there and you think, oh my god, <laughs> what, <laughs> what does this say? You know. But uh, I always find that really interesting. That the sort of like where you draw the line. Mm-hmm. Like I think it's. I think in the Bible, obviously, the the Old Testament. I think like is it women are worth two thirds of a man or whatever, and you can you can beat your slave. Uh, as long as he can get up after three days or something, mm-hmm. something like that. And it's always just very interesting to see where cultures draw the line on, uh, on these people that they, they deem contemptible. <laughs> oh, no, absolutely. And um, it's, it's, you know, with, with these law codes that we're very fortunate, fortunate enough to have in that respect, I mean, uh, they're, they're quite explicit in, in outlining exactly what slaveholders can do, um, mm. which is... is is almost anything actually. I mean, up up to you know, arbitrarily killing, um, killing you know your slaves. Essentially, um, there there really is there's very few limits on very few protections under the law for for enslaved people. But but interestingly, there are there are some. Um, for example, I think it's from the Icelandic uh, Graugas laws that a, an enslaved man is allowed to actually kill on account of of his wife. Um, which is a, an interesting, as it says, obviously there is a line there in, 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 in what can be done and, um, what recourse one can seek when they, when they've been, uh, been wronged in that sense. But, uh, yeah, I mean, for the most part, it, it, if, if the law codes are taken as they are, I mean, it was a, a terrible life. Um, I think, uh, for the vast, you know, it, it was uh, again, and this is this is something we don't tend, we don't really like to think about in terms of the past. But I mean, for for these people, so many of them, it would have been miserable. Um, it would have been, would have been horrible. Uh, yeah. So, um, just a, I've I've been um, kind of interested in in hearing the idea of some of the main some of the main slave points. Uh, across Europe, then, because uh, I know that you uh, you mentioned that you you worked on some of the maps uh, with Neil for his book. Mm-hmm. Um, so for the British Isles, um, wh- where would the where would the main slave points have been for that, or the stop off point, should I say, before moving on? Uh, you mean like markets, for example? Do you yeah. need... would they have been markets, or would they would some of them been specialised in it more than others? Do you think, or? I mean, do you mean in terms of um, where, or, or where, for example, raiding groups would, you know, where they would be raiding to capture people? I'm not, I'm just not sure what you mean in terms uh, of that. I sort of mean, um, uh, I'll, I'll word it again. So, like, uh, once, uh, once raiding groups would have uh, gone raiding and mm-hmm. captured, captured, uh, um, you know, humans to put into slavery, would they have uh, just would they have gone to anywhere or would they have been like uh you know to any markets or were there some markets that were more prevalent for this than than others okay yeah no, so now i understand you um yeah well i mean i think there there's various scenarios that that might have occurred um and there's obviously scenarios that i won't even think of but i mean um in many cases i think um especially um you know where where smaller numbers of captives have been taken um, my inclination is to think that these people were being um, abducted um, 
if they're being taken out of you know removed from their from their home community it's probably to be taken back to where the raiders come from um to be you know integrated and exploited um within their own community but there is good evidence for a well for several in my view interlocking slave trading networks that span the early medieval world at this time um and it's important to remember that, I mean, every society in medieval Europe is practicing slaving. I mean, this isn't just something that's limited to to, to the north. Um, you know, for example, I mean, in the British Isles, I mean, Bristol, even a thousand years ago, was a major slave trading emporium. Um, and, and it, you know, funnily enough, re-emerged as, as that in, during the period of the transatlantic slave trade. Um but yeah, there, there seem to have been um, markets... Just uh, before of, we go on then, would that have been of Irish... Um, uh, Irish was, that, was that a Saxon slave port then? Or? So this is... Um, so yeah, I've not the, heard of that before. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really interesting in that um, the, the, the Viking groups operating in the Irish Sea, um, I think, you know, I mean, it's, it's certainly towards the, the end of the Viking Age where the, the historical sources become quite explicit. But, I mean, these, these are prolific slavers. Um, and, yeah, basically, uh, Bristol was um, a hub for, for selling people into the, into the hands of the pagans, as it were, um, which uh, was very upsetting for the church, as one could imagine. And that's, that's where, actually, we, we see uh, Bristol as, as being highlighted as this um, terrible place where Christians are sold uh, to the heathens. Um, but as I say, I mean, the, the, you know, there there were there would have been nothing what we would call slave markets dotted all over Europe. Um, and of course, actually, it's, it's important to note that you you don't need to have you know what we might call an official slave market in order to sell captives. These, these people can be traded anywhere for anything um, if if you're so inclined. But certainly there seem to be large markets um, um, in terms of outside of Scandinavia, for example, in, in Cordoba, um, in Spain, um, also Venice and Prague, um, Constantinople. Um, and then there are, there are others too. I mean, in Scandinavia, we presume that the major port cities, places like, oh, sorry, not port cities, of course, um, but, you know, kind of a... Uh, what we would call towns, I guess, these port towns, um, places like Birka uh, in Sweden and Hedeby in, uh, in Jutland. These were the kind of major um, you know, slave trading locales. Um, but as I said, I mean, the, I think that this was an activity we would have seen going on frequently at, at various levels. You know, I mean, the, there's evidence for in the in the... In the Icelandic sagas, for example, for the selling of captives at, at kind of um, regional fairs, um, you know, where people would come together, um, you, you know, and uh, yeah, we see captives being sold there. I mean, pretty much any opportunity to to, to trade, you know, where where you had an opportunity to trade, I think you'd be finding uh, the sale of of captives taking place. Do you know of the sort of uh, the numbers of of people that could have been taken on typical raids, say in like the British Isles? Is there is there much evidence of that sort of stuff? Yeah, there there is um some um so the the sources that we have, I mean, some they're mostly very vague, um as as can be expected in uh, you know these these 
absolutely chaotic events might be encapsulated within a single line. You know, the the heathens came and raided so-and-so and took away captives. Um, and sometimes the, these sources do give numbers. They're, they're often suspiciously round numbers. Um, you know, so it might be a thousand people were taken away captives or 700 people. Um, and I think really in, in that sense, what you, you need to do is like translate that into just make, meaning that a lot of people were taken captive. Um, but at other times, it's, as I said, and it, it's, it also seems that, you know, this was an, you know, some raiding groups did this opportunistically. So, I mean, you would, um, you would go raiding abroad to perhaps seek, um, portable wealth, you know, precious metal work that you could take home. And if you took some captives along with that, then that would have been very good too. Um, but uh, the, the larger raids, I think, um, as I said, where we have these large and suspiciously round numbers, I mean, I, I do wonder whether these were you know, perhaps specifically intended as what we might call slave raids. Um, but of course, again, it, it, it's, it really is very difficult to say. I don't think we can ever really make a strong case for that. And, and you know, at the same time, you know, uh, these groups would have taken perhaps everything they could carry along with the captives back to their ships because, you know, everything is, is valuable to some extent. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, so I think really what... It's a case of acknowledging that there were very large raids. And I think uh, I have a colleague in, at Oxford, uh, Marek uh, Giancariak, um, who has done a lot of work on the slave trade in what is now the Eastern Baltic and in Eastern Europe. And, and he's made an estimate of perhaps, and it might seem like a small number, um, several thousand captives a year being traded in that region. Um, I think it was probably quite substantially more, um, but it's very hard to kind of make that that judgment without, you know, again, without without decent records of, of what's taking place. Uh, Marek's made this basis on the study of silver and the quantities of silver yeah. that were coming back into the Baltic and Scandinavia um, from the east. Um, but of course, it's, it's at the same time, you know, cap, you know, captives weren't just exchanged for silver, they were probably exchanged for a whole range of valuable goods. So actually getting a handle on, on quantifying the numbers of people taken and sold or um, in that sense is incredibly difficult. And again, we just have to make a, 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 you make your own mind up on this and be prepared to be wrong, essentially, is, is how I work with it. Yeah. Does, um, does uh, like the like sort of DNA come into this much in uh, modern populations? Because I know that it's a bit, it's a bit controversial, like say, when, like talking about DNA in, let's say, Iceland of like, say, you know, with having um, a DNA of, uh, you know, individuals from, from British Isles in Iceland, mm. does that mean that they went there willingly or not? Um, yeah. Could you tell me what you think on that? Yeah, I mean, well, there have been studies and of the the modern Icelandic population, and uh, ADNA studies have been done, um, and these do suggest, for example, um, the ones that have been completed, obviously, um, that uh, a larger proportion of the the Icelandic 
uh, you know, the, the female population during the Viking Age may have not been Scandinavian. They may might have originated from the British Isles. Um, and so immediately the place we might go to with this is that, you know, because we have so many um, accounts of, 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 of captive taking and slave raiding and, and often specifically mentioning women, um, that at least some of these individuals, individuals were taken to Iceland. Um, and, and, you know, I, I wouldn't say it didn't happen, um, but uh, I don't really think that DNA, you know, a DNA does can do great things. We're, we're finding out so many amazing things about about the uh, the Viking world and indeed the past in general. But uh, I would hesitate to to kind of use this as a as a um, a measure for trying to uh, make a case for kind of large scale movements of of captives and enslaved people. I, I think certainly that that you know if you combine um, analyses, you know, if you're, un, you're undertaking a, a study of a, a burial population and you notice that there are non-local people and um, there may be other criteria you can use to infer that these may have been people of low social status, perhaps enslaved people. Um, uh, you might look at their, their general health, for example. We might assume that enslaved people would suffer a greater range of maladies than, than the freeborn population. Um, they might have been engaged in much more dangerous tasks or physically um, demanding tasks. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you can make, uh, you know, they, they might have suffered from malnutrition more. Um, you, you can make certainly a case for arguing that, you know, this individual or that individual may represent, um, you know, a, a, a foreign captive. But, uh, yeah, it's it's it's... I think when you then start to go and try and extrapolate that to make big arguments, I think you, you probably run into some problems there. It's not something I'd really be, um, it's not something I'd be keen to do, uh, but if nothing else, just because I don't understand that science as well as the specialist. So, uh, you know, yeah, it, it's something, uh, I think if you're going to go down that route, you, you really need to be quite, you need to do it carefully and you need to do it, um, you know, taking all the right boxes as it were. Uh, yeah. to make a judgment call. I think there's lots of people out there that want to have like some sort of commentary on ancient DNA that actually have no idea what they're talking about. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's, just, it's, it's, it's one of those... Uh, it's in vogue to be uh, talking about ancient DNA and trying to transpose it onto the modern world at the minute, isn't it? And mm -hmm. it's, uh, it's not always so helpful. <laughs> No, and Indeed. of course, I mean, I think we're just, we're all, you know, we're still at the stage where we're quite, quite starstruck by this technology and what it can do. Mm. Um, but it's, it's, it's kind of mobilizing it in such a way that, you know, responsibly and, and, and with, with the right, um, the right questions in mind, especially. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah. And I always, I always defer to specialists whenever I can, because I'm not going to pretend that I know about it. <laughs> Uh, do you know if there's much uh, actual evidence other than what's in the text for uh, raiding in North America? No. No. <laughs> no. Um, that's, uh, you know, I mean, it's, uh, we know there's a, a, a Norse presence, as it were, in the New World or North America um, at some point late, um, you know, 
in the you know we know there's a late presence there but i i, I there's no way i'd I, you know there's indications yeah. there might be more to it than just the site at lanzo meadows but um yeah i wouldn't i wouldn't 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 stake my money on uh on on finding evidence for that mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what about um um just to reverse it around for a minute, do you know if uh, much evidence of the uh, the Scandinavians getting um, getting enslaved in this period as well? Mm-hmm. Um, that's a really good question. Um, the, yeah. Okay. Um, well, I mean, we we know we, when we when we think about the Viking Age, we think about, uh, for example, these these raiding groups as as being you know. Uh, utterly decimating anything that they met and anyone that was in their path, um, but but we also know from you know assuming that it's not over exaggerating too much from the historical record that actually a lot of these groups met with defeat as often as they met with success, um, and capture and warfare you know is one of the, the primary ways of becoming enslaved. Um, so in that sense, I think certainly uh, um, it would have you would have had a. Had had members of raiding groups being being enslaved in that way. Um, there's also some really interesting uh, material um, actually in in a in the Russian primary chronicle. It sounds like a bit of a, a tangent, but um, this this uh, deals with the uh, the emergence of um, of the the polity we know known knows as the Rus Kievan Rus in in what is now Ukraine and Russia uh, from the ninth century, and uh, in their dealings with the Byzantine Empire. Um, um, the, the Rus and, and the Byzantines they draw up peace treaties to kind of you know establish kind of peaceful trading contacts, and these actually specifically mention uh, prisoners of war, uh, people who have been captured and enslaved, and you can you could know, each side can ransom their prisoners from the other and get them back. Um, so I mean that that actually quite clearly demonstrates that you know it, it could definitely go both ways. <laughs> yeah. When you were doing this kind of thing. Um yeah. Um I remember uh, I can't quite remember of the specific accounts but I, and I again I can't remember if it was in Britain or Ireland. But there was a case where like uh some raiders um abducted some people and then offered to ransom them. And then they they abducted the people that were negotiating them them their release, and then they abducted their them as well. And until they were told, you can't keep abducting people because there's no there's no one going to be there to pay the ransom in the end. <laughs> well, it's certainly not good business practice. At the end of the day, um, <laughs> uh, actually, I mean the 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 taking of you know we've been talking about enslavement but actually the, the the taking of captives for ransom is an incredibly i think interesting subject um because this you know this hits on basis is just economic extortion um and and the way that they go about this uh i'm i'm in thinking of what you, the example you were talking about i mean i know there's the uh the the ninth century hagiographic source the life of finden um which talks about this noble man from Leinster, Finden, who um, gets a cap. He's actually captured twice by Viking groups. He, he doesn't do too well. Um, but the first time he's actually captured whilst uh, going to ransom his family members from another Viking group. Um, 
which is very unfortunate for him. And uh, but after holding him for a few days, these uh, the, the 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 raiders um, talk amongst themselves, and they're, they're apparently inspired by the you know the good of God to do the right Christian thing, as they always <laughs> are. Um, but yeah, they they seen you know, it's it's not really on to take someone captive who's actually on his way to ransom someone else. So then they let him go. Um, and of course, it, it, it's 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 not it's not the best tactic because, as you say, you run out of people to pay you, um, and it's something I, I've I've often wondered when you know, when we read about these attacks and these raids, not not just in terms of from a slaving perspective, um, but the you know the extent to which it was desirable to absolutely destroy the targets you're attacking, um, because that's how again we we picture the Viking Age: it's burning buildings and. Um, you know, heaps of dead people. Um, but actually, it might have been better business in a way to actually, you know, take something and come back later. Um, because then you've always, you know, you've got that source um, to continually draw on rather than just, you know, destroying everything you come across. Um, yeah. But, uh, but in, in terms of... Uh, Taking captives for ransom, I mean, this is, especially in Ireland, um, there, there seems to be a very kind of uh, a practice that at least some groups have got, you know, nailed down to a fine art. They are very good at doing this. And, uh, um, and in at least some cases, we know from the historical sources that these ransoms are paid and people are uh, returned to their communities. Um, but also in other cases, they are not, and they end up dying at the raid of ships. Um, so there's a whole kind of, uh, and, you know, and these these very brief statements in the records, they, they must encapsulate um, days or, or perhaps even weeks of kind of negotiations and failed negotiations and all kinds of twist turns in these people's lives that we'll never find out about. Um, you know, they would all make for a, a quite riveting stories, I'm sure. I've also heard this sort of implying the idea that sometimes they knew who these individuals were before the the raids happened as well, and um, that they weren't necessarily always a massive surprise. No, and I think this is it. I mean, again, when we we you know the in 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 England anyway, the Viking Age starts in seven nine three um, with the raid on on Lindisfarne Monastery, but I mean. Uh, it's it's no coincidence that these groups knew exactly where to go. I mean, uh, I, I think that the likelihood is that they'd probably been there before, um, just wearing a different hat. They were there probably perhaps trading with the groups inhabiting these sites, and one day they decided to come and not trade. They decided to take what they were after. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, and with that would come a familiarity with the people that, you know, that live there. So, as you say, I mean... Sometimes these these raiding groups might turn up and they know exactly who they're after, um, and and those are the, um, of course those are also the people that we read about in the in the historical sources because they're the members of the aristocracy, uh, members of the church, um, so they're obviously the prime concern of the of the people writing the, uh, um, writing the chronicles, um, but yeah no I mean it's it's I I think it's uh, there's a very good chance that in in many cases, especially in the early, earlier stages of the Viking Age, when we have these kind of um, very specific raids, um, 
that uh, you know the, 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 these groups are going to places they already know. Certainly. Yeah. Uh, is uh, I I'm I'm ashamed to say that I still haven't read through a, a full account of Eden Fadlan's um journeys. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm still um, it's on my list of things to do. Uh, I, I've heard that in that that the the group of uh of Rus as they're called um that they they are slavers and that mm-hmm. that they are on the that that that's what they they're currently doing in that that point Did, is there much mention of the slaves in that account mm-hmm. um yeah the the even for land's account is it's 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 just it's it's quite phenomenal in many ways um not least in giving us this really personal uh these really personal observations of the groups that, that even Fadlan is encountering on, on his journey. Um, and yes, yeah, see the, these Rus who he, who he meets, they are, they are slavers. They uh, have with them um, individuals described um, as slave girls. Um, the implication is that these might be um, sort of girls in their teens, essentially. Um, they also have with them a cargo of, of furs that they're looking to offload at the market. Um, and even Fadlan uh, gives a very graphic account of the way that they're treated, um, and it's it's quite clear that uh, you know these women are they're, they're valued primarily as sexual objects um, to be exploited by their captors. And as I said, you know, and even Fadlan actually graphically describes how that happens. Um, and it's quite clear, actually, from his account that he's he's quite fascinated by all of this. I mean, coming from, you know, a, a, a different culture, um, he's he's uh, he's fascinated at the same time making you know a, a, obviously a number of judgments about what he he thinks about this behaviour. Um, but yeah, I think that that account really underscores. I mean, really underscores for me. Um, this 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 side of the Viking Age that we do not really want to think about, um, and yes, the treatment of people of of objects as objects, the uh, exploiting them um, um, for these kind of uh, purposes, and uh, <laughs> unfortunately for I think for for uh, at least you know numbers of, of the women that found themselves being taken captive. During the period, I mean that that might have been their fate was to be exploited in this way, um, yeah. You know, or to be you know we might say that to be made as concubines or to be taken as wives, um, and while that might you know imply a in that sense there, there may be a, a certain status that comes with that. I mean we're still uh, at the other end of that spectrum. We're basically talking about sexual slavery. Um, yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry, just just to go back to it for a second though, because I, I was just thinking something like so. When um. In the uh the account that he gives about the girl that's picked to go into the grave mm-hmm. with uh, the recently deceased man, mm-hmm. she is said to be a, to be a slave, isn't she? Yes, uh, she is. Uh, so actually, I mean, he. So there's actually there's two instances. Even Fadlan first meets the Rus, um, and he talks about them coming to to the market and it's when he describes them um turning up and building um 
houses essentially for themselves to live in whilst they stay there. And it's, it's in these places where um, potential buyers would come to, to purchase these slave girls. Um, and even Fadlan, you know, he, he, he states, you know, the, the Rus' call on these girls to have sex with them and they'll do that in full view of the buyers. So there's that one side of it. And then you have the, what you're talking about here, the, um, the funeral of the Rus' chieftain. Um, and that is, yes, when, when the, the chieftain dies, the, uh, um, the, uh, his, his slaves are <laughs> given the opportunity to volunteer, uh, to be killed and, and burned with him. And in this case, um, um, it's a slave girl who, who, <laughs> who, who, you know, agrees to do so. I mean, of course, whether under compulsion yeah, or, or yeah, is another thing. But it sort of implies that th- that this girl in particular was at least accustomed to the the funerary rites, or could at least speak the language to be able to conduct her part in the ceremony. Mm-hmm. Uh, because they lift her up over a door object, is mm-hmm. that correct? And she she says thing she says that famous yes line yeah. of "I see my family, I see my ancestors and stuff." Mm-hmm. So that obviously sort of implies that. She, you know that they understand her that she speaks the same language as as, as them um one of the things that's been suggested and the we the records from the islamic world actually um uh, support this is that actually a lot of the captives coming along the eastern slave routes um were probably from the southern baltic area um so they're, they're slavic people and actually the rus as a as a uh, a multi cultural society which certainly incorporates a Slavic element. Um, yeah, I mean, these, these people would have understood each other, certainly. And they would have been, at least to some extent, I think, familiar with the, the basic package of, of rituals, um, you know, that, that, that make up the wider belief system. Um, so, yeah, I mean, uh, that's, that's, it's, it's been, yeah, as I said, it's been suggested that, you know, one of the major sources of, of captives in that, in that area was from the Southern Baltic. And we, we know from, uh, as I said, records from, um, from the Islamic world that Slavic uh, captives were especially prized, actually. Um, uh, they were, they, uh, Slavic women and, and children um, were, were especially sought after um, as slaves. So... I I am um, again that I read in Neil's book about the the idea that possibly, um, within Scandinavia there was a massive problem of, of um, like the of having a population that was uh, a majority of men and uh you know, that were that did not have a chance in the world of getting a mm-hmm. a wife or a girlfriend or anything, yeah, and that that's one of the reasons that that you know it led to to uh to heading out to try and forcefully take women mm-hmm. yeah this is actually some work that neil and i uh, we we collaborated on um while i was doing my postdoc uh, at another university um yes the idea that um uh when we talk about the origins of this thing that we call the viking age so basically the, the origins of viking raiding one of the many factors in this development may have been um a a uh, an imbalance in the in the sex ratio in Scandinavia and in that sense i don't mean there being less women than men but rather in a society um which practices polygyny and concubinage as i 
believed the societies of the Viking Age to have done. Um, whether the this this practice, for example, a polygyny would lead there to be um, uh, to create numbers of young men who were lacking in status and also a means to um, to to participate in the in the marriage market um, and whether you know this this provided partially a context for the for the raids and not just to seek you know women to bring back to Scandinavia as it were but also to seek the portable wealth the plunder um, that would give you as a raider the um, uh, the means of advancing socially um, it's it's very much a it's, it's very much a hypothesis um, that we put forward and uh, got a bit of a mixed reaction on that I must say but uh, I think it's something we, we certainly should consider um, yeah yeah Cool. Right, maybe just to um, just to tie it up then. Uh, could you could you tell us why you think that it's uh, one of the reasons you think it's so important to sort of look into this aspect of of the Viking Age in particular, and uh, and uh, you know why it is that, that you you know you mm-hmm. uh, that you've been working with this? Yeah, I mean it's actually the theme that we we've kept hitting on all the throughout our talk. Uh, tonight, it's you know um, when we you know in, when we study the past, I mean there there is a tendency, especially as archaeologists, to focus on on a certain group. And in the Viking Age, our knowledge is very much based on the study of elites. Um, and so, from one one aspect of this is that it's what what I'd like to do with this work is kind of just redress this imbalance that we have in our knowledge. A Viking Age society, um, because at the moment, you know, it's it's a very partial knowledge. It's highly biased um, towards the discussion of a single group, um, and that totally it marginalizes a very large proportion of the population. Um, not just in the past, um, because they were marginalized people, but but in the present today. Um, and my view is that we, you know, if we want to understand the past. Um, we need to understand the experiences of everyone who lived in the past. And, and obviously that's not possible in practical terms, but at least in, 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 in trying to at least get our heads around what it was like um, to live in a coercive system. Um, and, you know, I can make all kinds of, of comments about, you know, understanding the past to understand ourselves today, that kind of thing. But, um, I think that would be a bit disingenuous, actually. I mean, but but you know, we live in a world today where where still millions of people live in a state of enslavement. Um, we might walk past some of these people every day, and we have no idea. And and it's really kind of, for me, it's just you know, this is my way of trying to understand the lives of people who who have this condition forced upon them. Um, mm. so it's, you know, it's, it's not saving the world in any means in that sense, but, uh, uh, it, it's, it's, it's not, well, it's also just giving can... a voice. It's giving a voice to a, to a lost people as well, isn't it? Exactly. Um, because, you know, I mean, th- th- these were, these were, these, these were people, I mean, they were living a thousand years ago, but they, they were people, um, who, who experienced all all kinds of things that we will, you know, we, we ourselves can't imagine. And, and yeah, if, if I can try and 
at least scratch the surface of that. Um, at the very least, it, it provides us with a much more kind of, in my view, clear-eyed, clear-eyed, provides us with a more clear-eyed view of what the past was. Um, and that's something in terms of, you know, say in terms of the way we uh, we glamorize the Viking Age almost. I think that's that's quite an important thing. I mean, I know in, in, in Neil's book, which you've obviously read quite a bit, I mean, he talks about, you know, where we should admire the, the, the Vikings, these people we call the Vikings. And it's, I think in, in terms of contemplating this question, we need to acknowledge all of these behaviors um, yeah. and, and account for them and, and work that into our own view. Of, and of again, how, to understand yeah. how the machine worked as well. Exactly, exactly. Um, yeah, I mean, that's, uh, that's, that's really how, how that is for me. Uh, well. well, Ben, thank you so much for your time. Yes, no, no, you. thank you. It's, it's, it's been, uh, it's always, uh, it's uh, always really interesting to kind of work through these own in my own thoughts as I'm having them and, and to try and express them. So no, I thank you for the opportunity. Uh, it's, it's been really fun. Well, it's been a pleasure to, uh, to hear and to get to talk to someone that knows the stuff about some of this instead of just, uh, you know, contemplating myself. <laughs> well, I mean, I'm, I'm also doing that to be honest, but, uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, no, no, we'll get there. Um, but no, no, thank you very much. Yeah. Be great. And again, uh, when uh, when uh, lockdown is over and stuff, hopefully we can all come over and visit you guys over in Sweden as well. I I would absolutely love that. Um, please do. Uh, we'd have a great time showing you showing you around. It'd be really really fun to do. So uh, I look forward to. It. Yeah, fingers crossed for maybe twenty one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. One could only hope. <laughs>